What an honor and a privilege to be here with the, the master, the mentor of personal development, best-selling author, uh, one of the leaders in, in personal growth, and one of uh, you know the, uh, I'll say, celebrity uh, public speakers. Uh, best-selling author of this book, which I highly recommend, The Acorn Principle. It's transformative. It's an incredible book. And his latest book, The Power Minute, which I won't tell you where I keep it, but it's going to be the smallest room in the house where I have... <laughs> At least a minute or two to, to reflect on these incredible principles. Thank you so much, Jim, for joining us. It means so much. Oh, what and, a uh, treat for me, Sergio. Thank, thank you. Thank you. We just spent uh, a bit of time together in Austin, Texas, which was incredible. Uh, you know, just spending time with you. And, and what struck me most is not only, um, you know, your profound knowledge and experience that you're willing to share, but the type of person that you are. And when I came, you know, sort of reflecting on that, uh, it's a testament to your work. It really is. It's, it's this idea of being a public speaker and an author is what you do. All the accolades and, you know, president, past president of the National uh, Speakers Association, that's all important. But the man that you've become as a process of traveling this journey, I think, is what's important. I'd love to hear from you how a little boy from Little Rock, Arkansas, ends up traveling the world and changing the lives of so many people. How does that happen? Yeah, I was a, uh, a natural, you know, born with a silver spoon in my mouth. My dad was a telephone <laughs> repairman. Mom was a homemaker. Uh, my grandfather had had a stroke in his 60s and was disabled to the extent that he couldn't speak or move from his bed for the last seven years of his life. And he was in our front bedroom. And my grandmother needed as much care as she gave. Um, so she was also taking up energy from my mom. While my sister and I were growing up, my sister was three years younger. And uh, so, you know, I mean, how could I not succeed? It's incredible. <laughs> no, it's I'm joking. That's it's true, incredible. But I'm joking about the how could I not succeed, obviously. I expected a very ordinary life. I expected I would be just a normal person on the street. I would live a statistically average life, you know, retire at 65, die at whatever my gene pool average was, like 73 or something, which was two years ago. I'm 75 now. And um, I figured I'd have 1.34 kids, you know, and, and never make a mark. And, but I wanted to. I wanted, you know, I, I saw all of my heroes in, on TV and in the movies and, you know, and I wanted to do what they were doing. And so I'd always dress up in full uniform and play out whatever I was doing, cowboys or army or Tarzan or, you know, whatever. And had a tree house with a zip line that dad built for me, which was cool. Um, so I had a wonderful childhood, a joyful childhood. Uh, my grandfather, grandfather and grandmother being in the front of the house was actually what we considered normal because we didn't have anything else to compare it with. So as a kid, you know, I just went on about life, uh, part of the baby boom. So there were other kids all over the neighborhood and school was oh, three or four blocks away. And walking to school was not a challenge like the, the stories you hear about, you know, 20 miles uphill in the snow. <laughs> that kind of thing. Nope. I could get there, you know, in a couple of minutes at a slow jog. Uh, but I had a wonderful childhood. But I, what I expected was to be maybe a middle manager at the phone company or something like that for my whole career. Not what I wanted, what I expected. 
And then one day in 19... Would you say you had the seed of the potential in you? Oh, most definitely the seeds were in there. You had that fire. Yeah. And so I pursued all kinds of different jobs. You know, I had 40 different jobs uh, from the time I was a little kid getting paid for delivering newspapers or selling donuts door to door through the time that I was married and had a new son at home. And Paula and I were living in Little Rock. I was working at yet another job. Uh, I was a assistant loan specialist, which was clerk at the Little Rock Housing Authority, the Urban Renewal Agency. And I was an assistant to Bob Moore, and Bob Moore wasn't busy. <laughs> so I had much free time on my hands. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I wanted to do something that would matter because I never felt like I mattered much. So one day I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, what what could I do? And I heard the radio playing in the next room. And it was what today we would call a podcast. It was a, a little short radio broadcast by Earl Nightingale, who was considered the dean of personal motivation. And his show was a short five-minute show that was on 900 radio stations all over the world. Wow. So he was a big deal back in the day. And I heard him that day say, if you will spend one hour extra every day studying your chosen field, in five years or less, you'll be a national expert. In seven years, you'll be an international expert in that field. And I thought, well, an hour a day, I'm a government clerk. I've got eight hours a day. I could do this by next week. You know, and I started thinking, what, what do I want to do? I didn't know. And I kept thinking about it. And then it hit me, I don't know, maybe a few weeks later. I want to do what he's doing. But for me to become like a, a guru in the field of personal development or an author or a radio personality or a professional speaker like him was like, some little kid in, in Ethiopia dreaming to be president of the United States. You know, it was that much of a, yeah. a psychological gap for me. But then I thought, well, you know, I do have two handicaps. I've never given a speech and I have nothing to say. So um, <laughs> that'll probably keep my fees reasonable. What could I do? I said, well, he just told me what to do. Become a fanatical student of personal development of, you know, applied psychology, practical psychology. And so I did. And I bought all the classic books. Some of them were right here behind me, like Think and Grow Rich, The Power of Positive Thinking, As a Man Thinketh by James Allen, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, you know, all the mm -hmm. classic books of, of that genre. So I read those. And then I listened to records, which are large... <laughs> <laughs> which Those people know again, things? what records yeah. are, but for a while nobody knew. And I listened to recordings of Earl Nightingale and these other people, and then I listened to them on cassettes. And then after I'd been really immersed in this fanatically for, and I mean that in textbook sense, mm -hmm. to the point of absurdity, that's all I wanted to talk about, think about, be around. But here I am working during the day as a government clerk, and in the evening, I'd come home and I'd have dinner with my wife and, and our new little baby boy. And then I'd go to a, a junior chamber of commerce, JC's meeting, because the JC's, unlike Lions and Optimist and Rotary, although they do community service, their purpose 
wasn't community, isn't community service. It's leadership training. So the purpose of JCs is to train young adults in the skills of goal setting, project planning, motivation, interpersonal communication, time management, critical thinking, problem solving, wow. you know, the soft skills of life that produce the hard results. And um, so I was just all over that. And I went to 400 JC's meetings in two years after work and on weekends and holidays and got mega involved and took all their courses and, and led all the committees and served on all the, uh, the uh, projects that they had going. And I was listening to recordings of Nightingale and others during that time. And my worldview was changing. And then my world was changing. Were you losing friends along the way and, and family saying, maybe he's losing it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, my friends thought I'd gone off the deep end. He's joined the cult? <laughs> Truly. You know, well, I remember Paula's dad worked in a factory and she was one of five kids and, and her mom took in ironing and sewing, you know, to make extra money. So she didn't grow up expecting much either. And so when she encounters me at that point, going fanatical about all this, you know, at first it, it made her very uncomfortable. And she would say, well, why, you know, why do you have to be so greedy? I said, greedy? I don't want to take from anyone. She said, no, I mean, why do you want so much? Well, can't you be satisfied with less? I said, yeah, but where? What, you know, where's that line? And then as things unfolded and she realized that there was, you know, a future in this, then she became much more supportive and, and fine with it. But uh, at first it was a shock to her too. And, and my circle of friends changed. The people I had known and hung out with all these years who expected also a very ordinary life kind of drifted away from me. You know, they'd say, hey, let's call Jim. Eh, let's don't, you know, <laughs> Mr. Motivation, let's just, let's, let's not do that. And then I developed new friends who were totally into goal setting and achievement and success and all that. And so that fed my fuel, my uh, engines. And, you know, on that, it became rocket fuel and I progressed much more quickly. And to shorten the story and bring it up to date, I started by leading group discussions at JC's meetings. That's why I did 400 meetings in two years. And, um, Leading those group discussions made me pretty good at facilitation. And then I would get frequent requests after the first 50 or so of those to give presentations, give a speech about some of those ideas we had been discussing. And then I became a popular speaker and meeting leader in the Arkansas JCs, and they had 280 chapters at the time. And so this was at the peak of the baby boom being the right age for JCs. And, um, so I was getting speaking requests all the time, and I was driving all over the state doing these programs in the evening and on weekends for no pay. And then I started getting paid requests. I remember I got $10. I had to drive 130 miles one way to the meeting, but they gave me $10. And I thought, man, we're going now. <laughs> and then I got $100 for speaking to a, to a college faculty at their orientation program at the beginning of the year. This was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Tulsa Junior College. And I thought, man, I've arrived now. I don't have a college degree and I'm speaking to college teachers. 
And um, of course, it went from there to 3,300 speeches all over the world and was Professional Speaker Hall of Fame, the Golden Gavel Award from Toastmasters International, the, you know, all the accolades that a speaker would ever dream to have. So I've been truly blessed. It's incredible that you're so articulate and you mastered communication and at, at, at a high level. Um, you know, so I guess that goes against Thanks. the idea that you it need. It didn't start out that way. <laughs> it didn't start out that way. So you don't need an MBA to be successful in, in, no. in business or communications? No, but as a matter of fact, I, without a college degree until last September, I was awarded an honorary degree in business by High Point University in North Carolina. Thank you very much. I'm quite proud of that. 2021. But I didn't have a college degree. And yet, even today, I am an executive MBA professor at Cal Lutheran University School of Management in Thousand Oaks, California. I've taught at Pepperdine University. I've written college textbooks that are used by colleges and universities around the country. And my business partner for five years was Dr. Tony Alessandra, who was a college professor when we met. And he heard how much money I was making as a professional speaker and said, I think I'd like to do what you're doing. (laughs) And we're still best friends to this day. And that was 1979. It's incredible. When you grew up, I assume you had a um, a strong foundation, uh, you know, religious foundation. Some of the principles that we find in a lot of these books think are grow well, rich not, and not particularly strong. Not strong. No, uh, my parents didn't go to church often. They went, but it wasn't a, a regular thing. In Paula's family, it was because mm-hmm. her grandfather was a, a preacher. Wow. Primitive Baptist Church. And uh, I grew up in the Methodist Church in Little Rock, and we went occasionally. And um, it was, you know, dress up Sunday and go to church and sit there and listen to the choir sing, and then you can sing along, and then you hear a preacher, and then they pass the plate, and then you go home. <laughs> and that was the regular routine. You know, it was kind of like, check, been there, done that. So I... I I believed in God. I, I believed the Bible was was the right place to learn what was true. And um, that was about the extent of it. I didn't really practice that much until later in life. But about that time, 1972, when I heard Earl Nightingale on the radio, I was also trying to figure out what I believed. And so I picked up a Bible and read it cover to cover in three months at work. <laughs> That's how much free time wow. I had in that position as a clerk. Wow. I mean, give me a break. You know, I, <laughs> there was no reason for my position. And yet they had a position and it was funded. So they put somebody in it and that was me. So I was making enough to just barely pay utilities and rent. Um, but at least I was employed. And so I'm reading the Bible and there was a man named George Walker, a, a preacher in a black church there in Little Rock um, who worked with me. And so he he and I would sit and talk about what I'd been reading lately. And that was really helpful to me. Uh, but still, it wasn't a big thing for me at that point in my life. Although, you know, I, I still have a strong faith today. And I have a church here in Austin, Texas, which is a primitive Baptist church. Primitive Baptist meaning original Baptist, you know, yeah. as opposed to say missionary Baptist or Southern Baptist or free will Baptist or half a dozen other versions. Um, 
if they were branding it today, they probably wouldn't call it primitive. They'd probably call it original. Yeah. Um, but it, it's an old, you know, old time church uh, that has existed since the early, early days of, of America, for sure, under that uh, heading. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's a big part of my life now because I found a found my tribe, a bunch of people that I really like and admire who are living their lives well, and they've got all kinds of diverse backgrounds, and some are super successful, and some are struggling, and everything in between. So yeah. I'm a happy guy. You know, I, I've observed that some people struggle with the idea that, you know, if I'm going to be spiritual, then I can't be wealthy or financially free. What point in your life did you figure out that I can have yeah. both, and I can be okay with that? Well, I was getting sort of a double dose. I was getting success training and 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 Bible training, I guess, not really training, but you know, Bible exposure at the same time back in the early 1970s. So I was um well, it started when I was about 26 years old, and so I was really curious to figure out what do I believe and how do I live that? And I want a full abundant life. I want to make a difference in the world. I want to matter to other people and to the world in general. So how do I do that? And so I was drawn toward all these things. Like I mentioned, Think and Grow Rich. This is a original, you know, first edition. Amazing. And it, it was given to me by a colleague, Bob Choate. And I thought, wow, what a gift. I mean, first edition, that's, that's a substantial piece of work right there. Most successful uh, and most popular success book of all time. And then I got these, and I mean, we could go on for half an hour doing this, but <laughs> How to Be a Genius by Wallace Waddles, who wrote The Science of Getting Rich, which is the one that was featured in the movie The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. Yep. Here's How to Win Friends and Influence People, early edition from Dale Carnegie. Zig Ziglar, who I got to know later and became friends with. And this is a photo of Zig Ziglar and Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. Wow. I also became friends with Dr. Peel, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. And here's his book, The Power of Positive Thinking. So all of these books are saying, live an abundant life, make a difference. You know, poor people can't help much. You say, well, I, you know, I want to just, I just want to help people. I don't, I don't care about money. Well, how many people are you going to help for 14 bucks? Right. How many are you going to help with 14 billion? Yeah, but you got to be, no, you don't. You can be a good person and become phenomenally wealthy. As a matter of fact, most truly wealthy people came by it honestly. In other words, they got it by helping other people. Money Payment that you receive is proof that you solved some kind of a problem. You fulfilled a need or solved a problem or helped somebody or provided a service or whatever, and you got compensated for it. The more people you help, the more money you make. The more money you make, the more people you can help, the more abundantly you can live. So live abundantly. Be the most you can be, the best you can be. It's profound. That, uh, that brings me to the ACORN principle. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I have my ACORN here. Mm -hmm. That I keep on my desk, okay. you know. It's uh, well. First off, well, you have the big if one. We're going to get into acorns. <laughs> Let's get into acorn. Yeah, not not the little pewter one I gave to you. Look at this, Mama. Wow. Well, I tell you, this is Carolyn Brown, who used to work for me, gave me this one day. I love this. Uh, 
If you think about an acorn, acorn has three parts, a stem, a cap, and a seed. Well, this represents past, present, and future. So how does this relate to the book, The Acorn Principle? The Acorn Principle is that the seed of your future success already lives within you. You don't have to go get it. You don't have to become something different than who you naturally are in order to succeed. In fact, you will diminish your success potential if you try to change who you are. You can become better at being who you are. You can evolve instead of trying to change, and your advancement would be much more rapid. As a matter of fact, your quickest, your fastest, and easiest growth is always going to come from what's naturally in you already. So think about this. There's a legacy that came to you from all the people that ever existed before you. Everyone in your line passed that DNA through the stem into you today. The cap holds on to the seed until the seed's ready to grow. And I hear some people say, wait, 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 what if from the past all I got was negative? You couldn't have, because there's nobody that's 100% negative in their lineage. There were great people, wonderful people, good people, bad people, scummy people, and oh my God, why did they ever create that one, people? <laughs> they're all back there. Right. And they're part of that DNA, you know, that double helix that's in you and me. So we're carrying all that with us. The cap holds onto the seed till it's ready to grow by itself. Because what will happen when this separates from the tree is it dries out and that causes the cap to separate. And then the seed holds the potential that still lives within you. So the cap is your coaches, your mentors, your parents, your guides, your role models, your heroes, because it holds on to you until you're ready to go on your own. And then the seed within you holds not only your potential, but the potential that will be passed along through every life you touch, both genetically and behaviorally, every life you touch through that stem into future generations. So nurture your nature. Figure out who you are. Spend a lot of time noticing the patterns in your life. Find out what are your strengths What are your areas where you need resources because that's not a strength for you? And get tools to fill the needs and then fuel for the natural strengths and become more of who you naturally were born to be because you personally can make a profound difference in the world if you just look for ways to help other people. Like Zig Ziglar said, You can get everything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want. It's incredible. As you say, simple, but not easy. Sounds, you know, yeah, sounds simple. The the, uh, Acorn Principle book is a self-guided tour of you. Each chapter leads you through examining yet another portion of your life to figure out what makes you who you are. You spoke about mentors, teachers, parents. Who was your first mentor in the speaking personal development space where you were like, wow, this person has really it changed my life? It would have to be Earl Nightingale. What was it like meeting him for the first time? It was kind of like getting a backstage pass at a rock concert. Wow. Because he had been my mentor through recordings, audio cassettes. Remember cassettes? I have a few of those. Well, here's one. Wow. From Earl Nightingale, from his Lead the Field audio series, 
which I bought, and that's a story unto itself. I bought for about a month's salary, which was huge and unpopular uh, expenditure at home until Paula noticed how much that was affecting me and how much my life was improving. And then it came time to either give back these audio recordings or figure out a way to pay for them. She said, why don't you keep them? Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> she didn't want to go back to the old me. That's incredible. You know, the old me was, was 52 pounds overweight and smoked two packs a day and, and never exercised and didn't really have much going for him. The new me, I had lost all that weight, become a, a jogger. Um, I had stopped smoking forever. And uh, my life was starting to progress rapidly. And our circle of friends were all good people that we really enjoyed being around. So this this is working. And I got to Tulsa, Oklahoma. The USJCs, after seeing what I had done in Arkansas, invited me to apply for the position National Program Manager in charge of leadership training. So I drove to Tulsa and applied, and they hired me. And now I was making $1,000 a month. I was killing it. <laughs> and uh, I mean, 1000 bucks a month. I was That was actually my dream in high school was to someday earn $1,000 a month. And uh, here I was doing it, and I was the national program manager in charge of leadership training for two, no, 356,000 people, that many members of the JCs at the time. And I wrote training manuals, and I got to call people like Zig Ziglar and and, and people like that, Og Mandino, the author of The Greatest Salesman in the World, W. Clement Stone, the, the owner of Combined Insurance Company of America, and also of uh, the owner of Success Magazine. You know, I got to know these people. I, I got to be around them, learn from them, write training manuals based on their teachings. And when I would write a training manual, a few months later, we'd sold 70-something thousand copies of it because we had so many members of the JCs. And now I was being asked to fly around the country and give speeches at big conventions, sometimes for as much as a thousand, as many as a thousand people. And wow, thank heavens I had those 400 meetings back in Arkansas. So I was comfortable in front of a group, but jeepers. I mean, my world just exploded. So I did that for two years and then went out on my own doing my own training. And I called it uh, Jim Cathcart Seminars and then later Cathcart Institute, which still is today, 40 plus years later. Um, but gosh, I mean, thinking back on it all, I had never traveled outside the state of Arkansas until I got the JC's job. And then I started flying around the country for them and did maybe 20, 30 uh, trips. And since that time, I've spoken, as I mentioned, 3,300 times worldwide. Wow in every state in the United States, every province of Canada except the Yukon, yet I've been to Alaska three times. I've been to Australia 10 times, around the world three times on lecture tours. And from 2015 to 2019, this is after I was 65 years old. From 2015 to 2019, I did 19 round trips to mainland China and lecture tours to 23 major cities and in the year 2019, I did six round trips, 71 days in country Wow! over there. 
speaking to thousands and thousands of people at a time through an interpreter for six hours a day. See, that's wow. That's something incredible. I've written 23 books. You know, I mean, it just goes on and on. Thank you, Lord, right? I mean, gosh, how have I been so blessed? I don't know, but I'm sure grateful. Yeah. Well, that 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 is striking, the, the idea that you can take some of these concepts and ideas and bring them to China and deliver them in English through a translator, and it's still touching people on a profound level. What was that experience like, and what can you share with the listeners on that? Well, first off, China is communist. So in China, it's not okay to think like you and I think, it's, you know, right. personal freedom and all that. Uh, I had I had been asked by my uh, agent over there, Dr. David Chu. He said, Jim, when you think about China, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I said, culture, history, legacy. You know, this is an ancient land with, with lots of cultural uh, legacy to pass along. And family is a, a huge factor here. I said, what do you think of when you think of freedom? I said, America. <laughs> And I said, why did you interrupt me with freedom? And I said, well, you could have waited for me to finish the question, freedom. I said, well, explain. He said, we don't have it. You do. That's what I think of with America. And uh, then I realized, you know, you can't even have a conversation about the government over there without worrying what ears are hearing what you're saying, even if it's a really nice conversation. Um so here I am, American, going across the country teaching success skills. So I had a little bit of a, a philosophical hurdle to, to get beyond. So I would do this. I said, you must respect your country. You must respect the government of your country because you are Chinese and this, this is you, right? I said, you must also respect your legacy, your family. You've got duties and obligations, but you've also got gifts and privileges that have come from them. I said, you also have to respect your employer because they provide you the opportunity to earn a living. I said, and you must respect your gift because if you don't develop your gift and express it in the world then you cheat the rest of the world out of the contributions you could have made. We need what you bring. You were born for a reason. You were not a biological accident. You have a gift, and that gift can make the world a better place. So respect your country. Respect your culture and your family. Respect your employer. And respect and honor your gift. Well, they had never heard things like this. Wow. And it deeply moved them. And so that became the most important part of my message, which at first was just leadership training, sales training, interpersonal communication, public speaking, you know, all the soft skills, the success skills. But what it, when I saw what they were really resonating with was how to live a meaningful and satisfying life, I put more and more of that content into my, my presentations. And boy some powerful, powerful responses. That's incredible. That's incredible. And, you know, the reason why I did this podcast in the first, I mean, there's two reasons, but the main reason was I started mentoring the next generation of artists and filmmakers and, and giving back and, 
And, you know, I was doing mm-hmm. the same thing. This is where you put a camera. This is how you tell a story. The, you know, all that kind of surface stuff. Yeah. And what I realized is that a lot of these, I'll call them kids, um, really were looking for affirmation, mindset, support, just somebody to say, I believe in you and what you're going through is, is totally normal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Don't just show me the steps. Tell me how to think about it. It's like Emerson said, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, if you learn only methods, you'll be tied to your methods. But if you learn the principles that drive those methods, you can develop your own methods. That's where creativity gets unleashed. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, if we were on Saturday Night Live, I'd say, see what see I did what there. I, did there? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Somebody out there listening is is probably 20 years old, struggling, you know, both financially and and emotionally and spiritually. And they look at you and say, well, yeah. Jim is privileged. He must be lucky. And whenever we see wealthy, successful people, it just they just roll out of bed and it just happens. Or we think they're crooked. Right. You know, we either think they're gifted or they're crooked. And I was an average student in school. I was overweight. I, you know, I, I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a, a scholar. I didn't have family privileges. And, and I had a loving family. So that's a big blessing. But I, I didn't have any uh, door opening mentors or people like that until much later in life. And after Earl Nightingale, my next one was a man named Joe Willard who hired me. And he's still a very, very dear personal friend, even to this day. So when when people look at someone like you and say, man, Jim, you know, best-selling author, all these accolades, you know, and you talk about luck. And what struck me is is there's people like you and many others that have daily rituals. And you've, you've shared those very personal cards with us that you carried around with you every day. And, and you know, the famous life wheel that we had talked about. Um, talk to us about rituals and the importance of making mindset a lifelong practice like going to the gym. It's not something you do once a year. Or, you bet. Yeah. Well... There's a causation chain that I think people need to be aware of. Your mindset, the way you think about yourself, about life, about other people, about work, about the world, the way you think about the world shows up in what you do. That's almost undeniable. You know, you give someone the thinking of poverty thinking, which is a thinking of scarcity and everything out there is more powerful and more important than I am. And so I I just want to get whatever scraps I can before I die, right? That's the, you know, the weakest mindset I can think of. So you think strictly as a victim waiting for the world to determine whether you're going to have a good day or not. So that victim mentality will lead to victim behavior, which will increase the patterns of victimhood so that it will become your habitual way of living. And that'll show up in a reputation as being a loser and a nobody. Okay, so who's going to open their door to a loser and a nobody? Well, that would be nobody. You're just not going to get opportunities because people won't want to be around you. So what kind of a future is possible for that sort of person? Not much. Now let's go back and change the mindset. Let's say you take a neutral mindset. You say, no, I don't see myself as weak or as a victim. I I just see myself as a person like any other person. I don't know what my potential is. I don't know if I'm brilliant or if I'm gifted or whatever, but I'm 
I'm, I'm here and I'm willing to work. All right. Well, then the actions you take, if, if you've chosen well, will lead you to good habits, which leads to a good reputation, which opens doors to relationships that wouldn't have been there before, which makes the future available to you much larger. Well, why not be intentional from the start and start thinking about your mindset as part of your responsibility? How you think shouldn't be just a reflection of what walked by you. You know, don't be a mirror, for heaven's sakes. You know, be a point of origin. Be a source of light. So say, all right, how do I want to think? I want to think in ways that will make me matter more in the world. I want to make a difference. I want to be somebody. I want to leave an imprint. I want to make the world a better place. Okay, how do you do that? Well, first off, get out of the habit. No, first off, become more self-aware. Notice more about yourself. Get out of the habit of using negative limiting language. For example, I would, you know, I'd try to be successful, but I just can't see how to do it. No, you don't have the inability, which is can't. You haven't yet, which is circumstantial. It's not imprinted. It's just a matter of where you're at at that moment. Like when you're in a valley, you can't see beyond the next hill yet. In other words, you're perfectly capable of seeing beyond the next hill. You just don't have the ability to do that yet because you hadn't gotten to a high enough place. Okay, so eliminate can't. Or if you're going to use the word can't, always add the word yet. That's like a friend of mine, Danny Cox, five foot six, and he was applying for a position as a jet pilot with the Air Force Thunderbirds. And they said, you've got to be five eight. He said, what a coincidence. That's my goal. (laughs) He was too short He'll for get the there. job, but he told him, I'll get there. I'm just not tall enough yet. And they loved him, and they hired him anyway. He didn't get to fly with in the formations, but he got to be their uh, PR guy who would fly into a town ahead of their arrival and do speeches all around town to generate interest in the uh, performance you were going to see in the sky. He called himself a sonic broom salesman and had a brilliant career doing that and got to fly jets, just didn't get to fly in the fleet that he wanted or in the formation he wanted to join. It's incredible. But, you know, think of everything, every limit you have, that's a current limit. That's not a permanent stain. He said, yeah, but I've tried in the past and I've failed. Okay, everybody needs practice. <laughs> I think it was Charles Ruskin said, people have come to fear failure far too much these days. It's the practice necessary for success. Well, isn't that the truth? You know, how many how many World Series batters were good when they started? That would be none. They might have picked it up quickly, but they weren't good when they started, and they didn't know what they needed to know. Yet. What was that Yet. word? <laughs> Yet. Right? So always, always think of that. And I used to say, when I would do something impressive and a friend would comment on it, I'd say, yeah, not bad for a fat kid. Well, hello, a what? A fat kid? Why did I say that? Because I was self-conscious about being overweight and I didn't feel I had any control over it. You know, I was just born with fat genes, so I was going to be permanently fat. No, 
I had to get out of that mindset. I had to train through all of listening to those recordings and all this, you know, going to meetings and doing little thought diet, which is what I call that little card, you know, daily reminders. Every day I read that little affirmation that reaffirms my possibilities and not my limitations to get out of that fat mindset. And I did that in 1974. So 72, I heard Earl Nightingale on the radio. It was 1974 before I started applying that to my physical health. And that year, at the end of the year, I lost 52 pounds and went from a almost 40-inch waist down to a 30-inch waist. And today, 40-plus years later, I still have a 30-inch waist. Wow. And I'm in good physical shape. Wow. It's proof proof in the pudding. Not bad for a fat kid. You're, wa- you're walking the talk. You're walking the talk. And speaking of which, uh, let's apply this life wheel concept to your life. You know, I've I've had the privilege to kind of get to know you over yeah. the last eight weeks, and I know that music and riding motorcycles yep. is a big part of your life, and and you know you're in a loving, committed relationship of yep. I want to say 52 years. That's um, correct. How important is that to you to to have that life balance and how do you achieve that and how has music played a, a big part in that? Oh, music is just music is such a source of joy for me. Um, gosh, I, I I love playing music. I've got two guitars hanging on the wall, one over in the corner. I've got others stashed in strategic <laughs> locations around the world. And um, so <laughs> I, I absolutely love playing music and singing. I went out to Lukenbach, Texas, a little country town near here uh, on Saturday on my motorcycle. And I, I ride a Triumph Bonneville Beautiful. 1200, a, a 2018 model. And I went out there and picked up a loner guitar they had hanging on the wall and did about 30 songs and just entertained the people in the bar. No pay, you know, just said, hey, can I play a song or two? Yeah. And I ended up playing for an hour and a half and had a blast. So I love that. But thinking about the life wheel, if you do a circle with eight spokes and each spoke represents a portion of your life, they would be mental, physical, family, social, spiritual, career, financial, and emotional. All of those are important areas of your life. If you suppress your emotions and don't allow them expression, I mean, like if you are heartbroken and feel like crying, you should cry. There are times and places it's inappropriate, but you should definitely make time to cry because it's part of the healing process. If you feel absolutely joyful and and want to express your glee, find an appropriate place and do it for heaven's sakes. Have fun, you know, laugh until your, your belly hurts. Uh, show your emotions, feel your emotions, allow them to flow through you in appropriate ways. If you're angry, you know, go find a private place and scream your head off and beat on things if you want. Just don't do it to people. And and don't do it in public, for heaven's sakes, because somebody's going to come after you. Um, so everything about us needs its moment. And whichever part of your life you have not been paying attention to lately, Pretty soon, it's going to step to the front and say, okay, everything else, step aside. It's my turn. You've been neglecting your health. We're going to the hospital, right? Or you've been neglecting your finances. We're going to bankruptcy court. Or you've been neglecting your relationships. We're going to 
court or, you know, we're getting divorced or we're no longer friends or whatever, we're going to have a breakup. Whatever part of your life you have been neglecting, sooner or later, it's going to assert itself and take over the rest of your life for a while. So make a habit of systematically paying attention to each part of your life around that circle so that you keep each part nurtured enough that it never gets in the way of the other parts. And you say, well, what if I have to work, you know, 12 hours a day and I don't get a chance to rest and I come home and I'm exhausted? Well, then you need to look at what you're working at. Of course, if you're starting out and you're just struggling to survive, do what you have to do, right? But as you get to the point where you can make intentional choices, start restructuring your life. Start looking for ways to either tailor the job to be a better fit for who you are or find a new one and move to that and plan for the transition. It's like when I wanted to get into this field of training and development, I didn't have any any source of making that uh, financially smart at first. So I was doing volunteer work for the JCs and leading all these group discussions and conducting presentations for local chapters of Junior Chamber of Commerce for free. But during the day, I was still working for the housing authority and I was doing everything I could to pinch pennies and save money and, you know, not be extravagant. And then it started paying off a little bit and then a lot and then a whole lot and then phenomenally. So grow where you're planted, but branch out to where you want to be. It's great advice. And, you know, when we talk about living full, dying empty, you know, you have another good 40 years at least of, you know, I assume you're never going to retire. So where do you see yourself in the next? Well, if I do retire, you can come to my retirement party. Now, they may call it a funeral, (laughs) but it's a retirement party. I'll be there. Where do you see yourself in the next 40 years? What, what, What is left for Jim to do? Is there stuff burning inside you? Well, Okay, my my physical age is 75. My the way I think about myself age is probably more like 45. Mm-hmm. Um so I do have to acknowledge the physical limitations of this vehicle that I travel around in. The thing we call gym, right? Um I I've, I've got physical limitations to deal with, but there are ways to diminish the deterioration process. You know, people can live a whole lot longer than they expect to live. There's a book I love called Younger Next Year by Chris Crowley and uh, I've forgotten the other uh, Lodge. I think uh, Henry Lodge, I think, was the co-author. But I've met Chris Crowley, the author of that. And he's in his 90s and he's living like he's 50 and, and he still skis. I mean, occasionally black diamonds. Wow. Uh, so he's living what he's teaching in that book. But in the book, he said, look, after you're 50 years old, you've got a new part-time job for life, daily exercise. You need to be using your body in ways that tell every cell of your, your being, you're still on the job. Don't give up. Because the parts of your body you don't use anymore will say, okay, I'm done. And they'll start to atrophy and deteriorate to where you can't revive them again. So keep yourself vital and alive. I started at age 57 running mountain trails in the Santa Monica Mountains when I lived in California for 37 years. And um, 
in the last 18 years of that, I was living in the Thousand Oaks area. And I joined a local hiking group. Well, we were not like Sierra Club hikers. We were like Marines on a, a forced march. We would show up at sunrise three days a week and go for a three-mile one-way forced march to get a personal best on our clock to the top of the farthest mountain. And then we would turn around and come back, total six-mile round trip. And we had 23 different trails that were mapped out based on difficulty because we wanted difficult trails. So I did that for 18 years, over 15,000 miles on foot in the Santa Monica Mountains at sunrise, rain, shine, occasional ice and snow, uh, definitely hot summer times, all kinds of weather, we were there. And that kept me vital all the way to my current age. And, you know, I know people that are, that I graduated with who are, man, they're old. <laughs> but chronologically, the same old, the same age I am. I, yeah, I, I when I met you, I, I mean, I didn't even think of your age. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's something, I think it's, it's, a, it's an attitude and an energy that you put out. You have that youthful energy and, and, uh, Maybe Paula has something to do with that. I'm not sure. The music, had something to the do motorcycle with that, riding, yeah. and, and of course, mindset. <laughs> and mindset is, is so much. Mindset is everything. You know, it all comes down to mindset. Because you tell me what your problems are. I'll tell you what your thinking is. And we'll see how that needs to be adjusted so that your problems become obsolete. Amazing. You know, the problems go with the thinking. So certain mindset attracts more problems. And when you see those patterns of mindset, first you've got to recognize the pattern, interrupt the pattern, replace the pattern. And that's when your world starts changing. Recognize the pattern, interrupt the pattern, replace the pattern. It's like a computer. I wanted to ask you what the key to a successful relationship is because a lot of people listening, you know, might be wondering and or or you know at the beginning of that journey or in the middle or at the end we're not sure but what what advice do you have for people in a committed yeah. relationship or in a friendship and they're struggling yeah we were asked that at a wedding not too long ago paul and i were there and we were the longest married couple in the room you know it used to be that most marriages lasted a long time but then somewhere during the human potential movement of the 60s and 70s uh, marriage became less popular and less essential uh, because there was no longer any shame in living together and having children and not being married like there used to be. And then the pill allowed people to get married and not have kids. And I mean, not, you know, get together and not have kids, whether they were married or not. And so the world evolved differently related to marriage. And it's, I think it's been to the detriment of our society because marriage is, is based in commitment. And when people are committed to each other, whether it's a marriage, a family, the full complement of family or a community or a school or a club or a team, when people commit together, then they do better. They intentionally do certain things and they intentionally avoid other things. They come up with rules, guidelines, laws. They come up with commandments. They come up with policies. They come up with techniques. And so all of that comes from society. And of course, it could be done poorly. But if it's done well, 
That's the greatest thing in the world. Someone asked Dr. Kenneth McFarland, who was a famous lecturer back in the late 20th century, who I had the privilege of meeting. Someone asked him, a woman stood up and she said, Dr. McFarland, you're talking about all these, you know, these wonderful things that people can do to live a successful life. I'm only a housewife. What about me? He said, Madam, if you don't do your job right, it won't matter what the rest of us do. Wow. So, you know, if the mothers and the fathers and the families in their own homes don't do their job right, we end up with crime in the streets. We end up with chaos in the countries. We end up with a world that's not working, right? It all starts in the home. You know, they say that the biggest problem that the, the, the black community in America has experienced over the last 30, 40 years has been absentee fathers. Because everything that's wrong in in those uh, lower income black communities can be traced back to some policies that were made in the 60s and 70s that made it more profitable for poor people not to marry than to marry. And so fathers weren't encouraged to be in the home. And that led to more single mothers trying to figure out how to make things work on their own. And even if they might have been getting a government check, regardless whether it's black, white, or whatever color, it just happened to have been concentrated in the black community more. Um, you need both parents. You got to have the the you know the positive and and uh, negative polarities of a battery for it to work. You got to have the male and the female. So how do you make a family work? Well, item one, commitment. When Paul and I got married, we committed to the marriage. You know, if one person stands there and says, I do till death do us part, come rain or snow or dark of night, I'm in it. And the other person says, yeah, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> well, then you know you're toast because only one person's committed and one person can't carry a relationship. Relationships are not 50-50, they're 100-100. If you're having a weak time, I need to carry all the load for a while. And then you need to. You can't have a 100-0 or 50-50 and expect it to endure because 50-50 is just a transaction. Okay, I'll do my part as long as you do your part. Right. But if you do 47%, I'm out of here, right? So that's lack of commitment. Paul and I knew when we married July 25th, 1970, that this was for life. So when we have problems, when we have arguments, when we temporarily hate each other's behavior, then we know it's something we need to work out. It's not a, a rip in the fabric that's going to separate us, you know, forever. We're committed. That's amazing. And we love each other and treasure each other. That's so important. And and I assume a lot of those same principles you apply to your relationship with your business partner, Tony Alessandra, and, you know, being communication, integrity, yep. all those things, you know, that I assume gets you through the tough times. Yeah. Tony and I were partners from 1979 until about 1985. And um, then we separated back to separate businesses. And for a while, we went through what you would call post-divorce syndrome. Uh, we were, you know, no, I'm, I'm the one who did that. Or no, that was my <laughs> client, you know, all this sibling rivalry, basically, until we had felt comfortable in our own skin again, being the solo practitioner. And then we started building our own respective businesses, but we quickly reconnected in, in, in at a deeper level 
never disconnected, but reconnected at a deeper level. And to this day, you know, we're executor of each other's will and and dear intimate friends. And this is so, so many years later. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yep. To To wrap up, Jim, there's some artist out there, you know, who is unsure of themselves. They feel that, you know, maybe they have that acorn, that seed, that potential in them, uh, but just don't know how to express it or, you know, maybe they just don't believe in themselves. What advice do you have for that young person you know, because I've had the privilege of meeting your grandson, and I know that you've probably had many of these conversations with with Jason. So, what what knowledge can you impart, and uh, what advice can you give that that uh, young person listening? I believe that you and I, all of us, are portals. We're doorways. We're openings for life to express itself through us. You know, if you look at us physically, all we are is a bag of skin on on a structure of bones with some organs on the inside, right? So that's pretty <laughs> disgusting. Um, we're we're way more than that. We're the person that lives in here. You know, it, it, I want to do this exercise with everybody who's listening or viewing, okay? Point to yourself. When you ask people to do that, invariably they point to their chest. They point where approximately where their heart is. Now, it's interesting, we recognize people not by their chest, but by their face. So why wouldn't they point to their face when they're indicating themselves? Or point to their brain if they think that's who they are. Those are just tools. It's the spirit, the you, that lives inside the body that causes the heart to beat, that causes the brain to function, that has the intentions, the dreams, the goals. It's you, the spirit inside that body that constitutes the person, okay? And that person is the essence of life looking for ways to express itself. And Emerson, who I quoted earlier, also said, desire is possibilities seeking expression. In other words, if you really deeply want something, the that desire to have that or do that or bring that about means that that potential, that possibility lives inside of you. And it's looking for ways to make it happen. So if you don't yet have the skills you need to to allow that to happen, start working on those skills. If you don't if you don't have a ability to acquire those skills well, find the tools or the resources or the relationships that will compensate for what you're missing. Make yourself a more complete package that way. If you don't have the mindset or the personal experience, or if you're carrying extra baggage, whether it's emotional baggage or physical weight, or or you're not heavy enough, or the you know whatever it happens to be that's limiting you, intentionally remove that over time. Allow life to express itself more abundantly through you. You can do much, much more than you ever dreamed once you allow those dreams to manifest themselves by acquiring, getting ready for what you don't even know is coming yet. People say, well, how can I get ready when I don't know what's coming? Get ready for as many things as possible. What does that mean? Develop all of the skills that would make you able to succeed in a dozen different ventures instead of only one. You know, if you want to be a good actor, don't just develop your acting skills. 
because that's just mimicking behavior. Develop your skills in learning to think like other people who are in different circumstances with you. In other words, develop empathy. Understand philosophy and psychology better. Understand interpersonal communications better. Learn to sing. Learn to to speak in creative ways. You know, learn to listen more acutely. All these skills increase your ability to do different things. Develop your physical, your manual dexterity. Develop your physical strength and flexibility so that you can do more things. And it allows life to come through you in a much more complete way and makes the world a better place. Because those people who don't develop themselves are being enormously selfish. They're saying, look, the world doesn't really need what I could have done for it, so I'm not going to bother. Besides, it makes me uncomfortable, and I'm comfy now. Please pass the Cheetos. Yeah, yeah. And that goes back to the book, The Acorn Principle. You know, it's... uh... Yeah, it's beautiful. The great advice, Jim. I can't thank you enough. And how do you feel about uh, you know bookending this beautiful interview with a song? I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, <laughs> you know, I selfishly Sorry, hang uh, on. you know want to want to experience that as I did in in Austin. I want to relive wow. some of that. <laughs> It's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything, lay off of my blue suede shoes. Woo! <laughs> amazing, amazing. Yep. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Always a pleasure, always a privilege. I got one for you. Let me, let me wrap this up with this one. This is one I wrote with my friend Harold Payne. It's short. How would the person I'd like to be do the things I'm about to do? It's much better when you can see from a higher point of view. How would the person I'd like to be do the things I'm about to do? If you want to build a better world, be a better you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. That was a beautiful way to end this. And, uh, you know, I, I never like to end things, but this is just the beginning. I really appreciate uh, your time. I really enjoyed our, our mastermind in Austin, and I encourage everybody, look up Jim Cathcart, your website, your TED Talk, read the books, start with the Acorn Principle. It was my favorite. And uh, I thank you so much for, for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us. Yeah, it's a blessing for me. Thank you, Sergio. Great to be with you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. <laughs>